Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stammel Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet, and we're on chapter three. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 3. Farewell to England. We cast off from the railway pontoon at Dartmouth with an overwhelming sense of finality. We acknowledged the friendly cheers of our friends and many well-wishers who had gathered on the harbour front to see us sail. If there is ever a feeling of high endeavour in setting out to challenge an ocean in a small boat, the slightest aura of glory, courage or heroism surrounding the members of the crew, it certainly did not attend our departure. We were depressed and overawed by the prospect before us. The gentle afternoon breeze gradually died as the sun sank below the beautiful hills above the town. A few minutes after we had cast off, the wind dropped completely. The surface of the harbour took on a restful, oily aspect, and we were left embarrassed with sagging sails only a few hundred yards away from our point of departure. Our old friend, Riddle, the pilot, chugged over to us in his launch, took a line from our Samson post and towed us out to sea, thus saving us from the possibility of cheers changing to jeers. We were left to fend for ourselves about a mile beyond the harbour entrance. By this time it was dark and we looked wistfully back to the lights of Dartmouth. With all our hearts we longed to have the journey behind us. We might now be sailing into port with the joyful expectation of a leisurely few days without care, among the sheltering green slopes, listening to the sounds of our favourite port echoing across the valleys. But reality soon began to insist on our attention. The tide turned, and we began to drift to the eastward. This in itself would not have been very disconcerting, but half a mile down our line of drift lay a considerable obstacle, an obstacle rather unlikely to move out of the way for us. It was the Mewstone, a hunk of rock probably weighing several million tons and shaped like a shattered alligator's tooth. We had no oars aboard as they were not likely to be wanted in the Atlantic, so the boat was out of control. Soon, as we drifted towards the danger, we saw it loom up, black and jagged, soaring venomously into the deep soft violet of the night sky. In spite of the slick, glassy surface of the sea, a fairly heavy rolling swell slipped noiselessly beneath us, and as we approached the rocks, we heard the ominous roar as it dashed itself against the foot of the great mass. If we struck it, it seemed likely that the Nova would be out of commission for a long time, and the voyage end within a mile or two of its start. We hastily unlashed two bamboo spars from the aft main stays, which we had brought with us to use as spinnaker booms. Then, using these as paddles, began a frantic, agonised fight to get clear. The bamboos were too thin to make much of an impression, and paddling desperately, our lungs felt like bursting as we quickly burned up all our energy. But still we were not clear. The sweat poured down till our eyes were swimming and smarting, but we redoubled our efforts till the blood roared and throbbed in our heads. The strain became more than our arms could bear, and, exhausted, we subsided on the deck, gulping for air. It was 
several minutes before we recovered and we sat up, and to our immeasurable relief we saw that we were being swept clear by a narrow margin. After this narrow escape, the remainder of the night was spent in creeping offshore across the western entrance of the English Channel to Ushant, a sinister cluster of islets, rocks, shoals and tide rips extending several miles off the most westerly tip of France. The wind increased during the following morning and our log records an unhappy day of cumbersome steep seas with the wind fresh to strong. We would not be surprised if the log forgot to mention that we suffered a few queasy calms of wretchedness. On the 26th of May, the second day out, we were becalmed in mid-channel in a very confused sea, which banged and slatted the gear in a most irritating way. Despite this, however, we were able to carry on with overhauling the stores and gear in the cabin. This was work which occupied much of our time in the first few days, for we had to distribute the load throughout the boat and discard all unnecessary weight in case the weather deteriorated. We sorted out the extra sails, stowing those which we thought less likely to be required into the after locker, which had a small watertight hatch in the deck. The others were prepared for immediate duty. These were the light balloon spinnaker and the smaller trysail. The less useful sails were the tiny storm jib, about six feet along the luff and about two feet from the luff to the clue, made of heavy flax and carried on the first voyage, and the bigger trysail. This was also of heavy flax and brand new, a beautiful sail, but at this time considered by us to be a little bit too close to the area of the reefed main to be useful as its alternative. We cooked several hot meals each day and found our pressure cooker a real delight, especially now that we used the timing device. On the previous voyage, we had a very small Canadian pressure cooker which did its work perfectly, but even when cooking for only two men, a larger one is better, as it is often necessary to heat several cans of food, and it's nice to do the whole lot in one go. A pressure cooker has many advantages worth considering on a small boat. It saves a great deal of water, for the cooking is done entirely by steam. The saving of fuel is important too, for the cooker heats and cooks very much quicker than the normal boiling method. This saving in time is of prime importance to a man who is cooking under the very difficult conditions we sometimes experience in small craft. It took several days before we really began to visualise the nature of the journey ahead of us, and then we felt terribly depressed at the thought of the dismal hours on watch, and it comforted us little at that time to remind ourselves that we had a snug little cabin with two very cosy berths. We think that the motion, continuous, noisy and infinitely maddening, since we had not yet got used to it, contributed much to our early despondency. We had gloomy and morbid thoughts about the long months of uncertainty to come. One never knows just how wicked the sea can get. Perhaps the storms we had seen in the past and upon which we had based our ideas of a ship's seaworthiness would look suddenly like a street puddle in a corner draft. It seems that it is not in the nature of humans to be contented. If we are secure and comfortably ensconced in a dull, safe job, we yearn for the thrills and adventures of the traveller, and the sight and scent of lands that we have only read about. We long to hear the delightful sounds of a foreign language, to listen to music we have never heard before, played on instruments we have never dreamt existed, to see people different from those we know so well, laughing and dancing in a different way. 
We sigh for the clean, fresh smell of the open sea, an unobstructed horizon, more sun, snow, ice, mountains, anything to get away from the drab, day-to-day -day scene so devoid of romance and interest. And then, as we set forth, having wrenched our freedom from social encumbrances, we tremble within ourselves as we see a different life ahead of us. We wonder fearfully what demands we made upon us. We try to measure the sea of uncertainty across which we are now committed to sail. We miss the thousand little comforts which accompany security. We doubt our strength as we face the bleak, unsheltered struggle ahead and realise that our very existence may depend upon it. If illness falls upon us, there will be no days in bed to regain our strength, for the elements are relentless and tireless. In this frame of mind, we face the prospect before us, yet we would not have changed places with anyone. We were then 130 miles southwest by south of Dartmouth, and must have been drifting back and forth at the mercy of the ebb and flow of tide, for there was no wind at all. During the night, however, a breeze came up, and we resumed our crawl down towards lower latitudes. The first of our troubles made its appearance on the following day. Chapter 4. Near Disaster Ushant, our first ordeal, the sea anchor, omens, and danger averted. On the 27th of May, dawn crept into the sky with a pallid leer. The sea was a dismal expanse of dull grey, looking rather like an immense sheet of crumpled lead foil. As the sun appeared above the horizon, a hazy sphere of red gleaming through a thickening sheet of cirrostratus, we watched an ominous bunch of small black clouds sweep eastward across the sky to challenge it. A few minutes later, they were joined by more, and soon they covered the sky and turned morning into a gloomy twilight. An hour later, rain started to fall with increasing persistence, and we began to see that a day of misery lay before us. About eight o'clock, a rising moan in the rigging and an occasional toss of spray high into the air warned us that sail must be shortened. We lowered the main a few feet and tied in a reef. Then we lashed the helm and went below to await events. Before noon, the seas began to rise and made it necessary to reduce sail again. We brought down the main and set the smaller of the two trysails in its place. Our position in the morning was not far from France, about 30 miles north-northwest of Ushant. We had by then almost crossed the mouth of the English Channel. Fair progress was being made and we thought we could clear Ushant nicely and get an offing in case we were in for a real blow. As the afternoon wore on, however, the sky persisted with maddening intensity. We began to feel stiff and the skin on our hands swelled up in an unpleasant crinkly way with the constant wetness. We shivered with the cold despite the special rain and windproof overalls and thick soft duffel coats fastened by zips. The wind veered slightly to due west and began to pipe a mournful thin note in the rigging which somehow affected us physically. Our stomach muscles tightened our throats became dry and we saw anxiety in each other's eyes as the seas rose higher. We knew we were about to be tested, and in the position a sailor fears most, for 15 miles away to leeward lay Ushant, 
with thousands of rocks scattered out over an area many square miles in extent. And soon, if the wind continued to increase, we would have to lower all sail but the mizzen and put out the sea anchor. And then nothing could save us from a steady drift downwind towards the nightmare of the rocks. Anyone who has watched the behaviour of the sea among rocks in bad weather will appreciate the horrible fate awaiting us if we did get driven among them. We had read a few accounts of the ghastly end of those caught in such a trap. A little boat, like the Nova Espero, would be thrown against the face of a rock, dragged down by the receding surge, tossed up and over and over and then flung down again with unbelievable force. In a few minutes, she would be nothing but a pitiful sprinkling of wreckage. It does not even do to try to imagine what would happen to a man in the roaring, thunderous breakup of Atlantic seas among the jutting ledges and vicious, tearing points of rock. A horrifying example of the results is told in a recent book about the life of Win Stanley, who dedicated his life to the erection of the Eddystone Lighthouse because of his extreme compassion at the sight of a hardly recognisable survivor of a wreck on the rock. But one should not dwell on such thoughts, and we would not do so now if we were not trying to describe how we felt as the threat became more apparent. As the grey light of day slunk westward out of the sky, the wind raised its howl and we brought down the trysail and foresail, leaving only the mizzen to keep the boat head to seas. We put out the sea anchor and length of warp to slow down the drift and went below. There was nothing much we could do now. The little boat had been through worse weather before, but then she had plenty of sea room to leeward, and it was merely a matter of keeping afloat. It was miserable to have to resort to the sea anchor so early in the journey, but we were relieved by the behaviour of the boat when lying to. The principle of the sea anchor was first developed by Captain Voss, who proved that even a small boat could live through storms if she could be made to lie head to seas, with a slight drift astern. In order to hold her head too, some kind of drag is necessary, and Captain Voss perfected a form of canvas bag with a wide mouth and a small opening at the tail. Riding to this sea anchor by a long warp, he weathered even the severest gales in his famous voyage around the world in his little vessel, Tillicum. Every quarter of an hour, the man on watch peered out into the dismal blackness of the night to make certain that no ship was bearing down upon us, not seeing our feeble oil lamp, for we were near to the area where south and northbound shipping converges when entering or leaving the English Channel. The rain still beat down with a heavy pattering on the cabin roof, and the wind howled a fiercer discord through the rigging, and every few minutes a roaring swishing sound bore down upon us from above and with a loud crash hit the bluff of the bow and shot a heavy sheet of spray high into the air. The bedlam of noise inside the cabin was indescribable as a little boat fell from the top of a sea to land with a shuddering bang in the trough or rolled violently from one bilge to the other swinging the burmos cooker with a metallic clatter to the full extent of its freedom in the heavy gimbals. Now came one of those very rare occurrences which sometimes shake the modern sailor into a sympathetic understanding of the superstitions of the sea. We began our voyage on a Friday, by the way, because we were not very superstitious. We lay on our bunks, trying to cheer each other up with happy reminiscences, 
every now and then coming back to our present position and trying to find out if there was anything more we could do to save the situation. When, suddenly, into the cabin fluttered two bedraggled little swallows. May we be excused if in this rational modern age we felt a queer sense of omen? Clearly, two swallows might overcome their fear of men if they were far out to sea and, exhausted by the struggle against the weather, could fly into a cosy little cabin for shelter. But we were not so far out at sea, and twenty minutes flying or less downwind would have seen them overland. We wondered what they thought of the terrific noise in the cabin and what they felt on the discovery of these two great wide-eyed human beings in such close proximity to themselves. After about half an hour, nervously chirping and chattering to each other and flying in and out of the cabin, they made up their minds to stay the night. They settled in, found us friendly and eventually fell asleep. How pathetic the little pair looked, snuggling together for warmth and mutual encouragement. Their sense of balance as the boat tumbled every way was quite comic and relieved the grimness of the long hours tremendously. With their heads huddled down into their feathers of their shoulders, they swayed round and round and from side to side on their little matchstick legs, and their long tails took care of the pitching motion beautifully. They were not interested in the food we offered as a gesture of goodwill and hospitality. We felt quite sorry about this. About one in the morning, one of us went out on deck to survey the scene. Ten minutes passed. A quarter of an hour. Half an hour. Still he remained out on the cabin top, clinging to the snatching, standing rigging, peering downwind, every moment or so rubbing the water out of his eyes with an impatient gesture of exasperation. At last... He came down into the cabin and, without bothering to take off his dripping clothes, he sagged down on his bunk. After a minute, he looked up and said, I'm afraid our trip ends before dawn, old chap. Oh, you've seen uh, it, then? Yes. Hmm. We'd better be blowing up the dinghy. Yes. An anchor might have helped after all. What luck, eh? It was the flashing light of Ushant to the east of us, and definitely close. For though its normal range is 21 miles, this must have been greatly reduced by the thick visibility. A few minutes later, we sighted another light, a little further south. Something had to be done, and done quickly. In desperation, we struggled forward and hoisted the foresail, but a moment later, we lowered it again, for while the sea anchor was out, the sail only increased our rate of drift. Anyway, it seemed likely to blow to pieces every time it slatted in the wind, and we thought it best to save it for the crises, in case we could use it for manoeuvring among the dangers of the rocks we were so inexorably approaching. Two hours later, the lights were closer, and the situation seemed helpless. Suddenly, a wonderful thing happened. The wind lessened slightly and veered a little north of west, and then... Our little friends, the swallows, flew away one by one towards the land. In a few minutes, we were able to bring in the sea anchor and set the foresail, and with painful slowness, we gradually cleared the land, and as the light of grey dawn appeared, the Nova was making slow but nonetheless sure miles south, away from the terrors of the night. The last entry in the log for the 28th of May reads, 
Wind veering slightly more to northwest. Force 5 to 6. Most of day we went slightly too far south on our best course. Not very satisfactory, but we are too thankful at the timely abatement of the last night's gale to grumble over much. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.